This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God and worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. For everyone else, I'd like to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 1. Uh, we're starting a series in James, so for the next few months, we'll be diving in to this letter. It's known as a general epistle because it wasn't written to one congregation. Uh, it was written as a letter it would go out to many congregations, as we'll see a little bit of this morning. So as you're turning there, I would like to give you an update on Emma. Uh, thank the Lord we were able to go home from the hospital December 26th. Uh, she is doing much better, breathing much better, looks better, colors good. She's still not back to where she was prior to contracting the pneumonia and RSV, but still doing much better. So thank you for your continued prayers. James chapter 1, and this morning we're just going to look at one verse, the greeting. As we look to this greeting and we find a guide for living. James 1 verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. May God be glorified in the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. A survey was recently done among men, and it discovered that 50% of the men surveyed felt like that if they needed to land a 747 that did not have a pilot, they could do it. This is the same 50% of men who admitted to getting frustrated when untangling Christmas tree lights. There's nothing like confidence. But when you see the stories where something like this actually happens, it is quite amazing. In fact, on May 10th of 2022, the airport at Fort Pierce, Florida, received a distress call from a Cessna, not a jumbo jet, of a man stating, I've got a serious situation here. My pilot is incoherent, and I have no idea how to fly the plane. Well, upon receiving this message, the air traffic controller began to speak calmly to him and sent a friend, another air traffic controller, to find a gentleman by the name of Robert Morgan. Robert was the man for the job because not only was he an air traffic controller, he was also a flight instructor who had logged over 1,200 hours training people how to fly. So Robert got onto the radio with this man trying to land the plane. And he said, I knew I just had to keep him calm, point him toward the runway, and just instruct him how to reduce the power so he could land. And thankfully, everything worked out well. Robert Morgan did what we see in the movies. He talked this man down and how to land the airplane. But Morgan said he would never forget the moment when he walked out on the tarmac this man ran toward him with tears in his eyes and said, Thank you, thank you. I can't get, wait to get home and tell my pregnant wife I landed an airplane. A happy ending. I tell you, though, if you're in a situation like that gentleman was behind the wheel of that plane, the stick, you want somebody to guide you. And I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where I have felt like I'm behind the, the, the stick of a 747 and don't have a clue on what to do. It's good to know we've got a God, isn't it? The Lord has not left us alone to try to figure out life on our own. And thank, thankfully, He's with us. He's the God that we need to look to. 
Now, there are a lot of other gods we can look at. In fact, it's when we look to these other gods that we get into trouble, isn't it? One of the primary gods we hear today is this piece of advice. Follow your heart. And while that sounds good on the surface, it's horrible advice. Because the Bible says our hearts are deceitfully wicked. You know what that means? Your heart will lie to you. Your heart doesn't know what the best thing to do is. It's wicked. Now, I know that's not exactly a zippity-doo-dah greeting this morning, but it's the truth. Following our intuition, following our desires, will in fact often make the situation worse. So the heart's not a good God. Some say simply follow your tradition. In other words, trust how you were raised. That's going to lead you in the way to go. And while that may be good counsel at times, it can also perpetuate sin. For example, the sin of racism is often justified by saying, well, that's just how I was raised. What could be wrong with it? So you see, tradition is not always a reliable God. No, we need a God that is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving. Sounds like God, doesn't it? So God is a God who will lead us to those difficult times of life. And that's why we're looking to James. Now, if you're the type of person who likes answers, just shoot them straight. No nonsense. Tell me what to do. The book of James is for you. Because James is practical. James is written to a church that is going to be undergoing persecution in the very near future. And he's writing to give guidance to this church in how to live life in a culture that does not recognize God. It's a very how-to approach to live the Christian life. And we start here in verse 1 by getting a guidance. This is like in this passage, it sets our guidance system in the way it should go. And it does so by looking at three levels of living. These three levels of living are crucial for each of us because each is important for having a fulfilled life before God. It's the level of self, the level of community, and then the level of transcendent meaning or God. Each of those are important. Just like with a fire. There are three things you have to have for fire. You need to have a, a fuel source, you have to have heat, and you have to have oxygen. If any of those are missing, you're not going to have a fire. Well, on these levels, we need to ask, God, where are we looking at for meaning for self, meaning in community, and meaning for an overall purpose in life? So with that grand introduction, let's dive into verse 1 of James because we start with the question of identity. Now, while that same seems very deep philosophically and can lead to a, a level of navel-gazing, it's very important for us to ask, what gives our lives meaning? What's our identity? Who are we? What are we about in life? Now, James begins with an introduction, and it's not a flowery introduction. It's not touting himself. James could have. I would remind you that the James who wrote this letter is the half-brother of Jesus. He could, have, he could have played upon that. I am family with Jesus. He could have started out with a story about growing up with Jesus. Now, you talk about pressure. Now, I'm speaking as the, uh, I've got an older brother, so I'm the baby of the family. How hard is it growing up with an older brother? How hard is it growing up when your older brother's Jesus? 
I wonder if James and his other siblings had stories about, yeah, I remember that night. We were going to break into Bartholomew's barn and get his donkey and go joyriding, but Jesus talked us out of it. He was always talking us out of stuff. But James doesn't do that. There's no stories like that. James could have touted the fact that he was a leader in the church. Paul in Galatians mentions that James was one of the pillars, one of the, if you were the super apostles. The book of Acts talks about the leadership of James that he gave to the church. James gave stability when the church was persecuted. But James does not list that as a resume. What's his resume? A servant. That's it. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who I am. Now, the word servant in many ways cleans up the Greek word. If you enjoy linguistics, the word there is doulos. Not diakone, which is a word for servant like table waiter, where we think of deacons in our congregation. No, the word here is doulos, which literally means slave. It would be more appropriate to translate this, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's something about that word slave that's upsetting to us, and, and rightly so, because a slave is one who is owned by another person. And we value freedom. And the people to whom James wrote valued freedom also. Slavery would have been scorned and rejected. It wasn't something one would have boasted about. It would be something to be avoided. Even if you were a slave, you wouldn't want to be identified as one because of the negative connotations. You were not your own. You were owned by someone else. Yet throughout the scripture, we see men and women of God referring to themselves as slaves of God. Moses. David, even one of the books of the Bible, Obadiah, Obadiah literally means slave of Yahweh. Paul, Peter, both refer to themselves as slaves of God. But to understand that to be a slave of God is not debilitating. It's liberating. Because when you are a servant of the Most High, you are doing so because of love. It's not a slavery that represses. It's a slavery that frees. It's a slavery that you are saying, I am possessed by God. My life is not my own. My life is His. And He is good and benevolent and gracious. So I do not seek what I want. I seek what He wants. You see, one of the words that we use a lot, it's a very biblical word, is the word redeemed. It's found in the, the scripture talking about how God redeemed us from death, redeemed us from slavery. We sing of it, redeemed, redeemed. How I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But the word redeemed is an economic term that means to purchase another. God has bought us to be His. And it's out of love. Rather than recoiling at the idea of being a servant of God, we should embrace it. Because when we embrace it and we say, Lord, my life is not my own. I am not free to do what I want. I will do your will, O oh God. Then we know freedom because God's way is the way of life. I like it like this. In 1987, a movie was released that's one of my family's favorites. The Princess Bride. I think of it every wedding ceremony I perform because I'm always tempted at some point in the ceremony to say, marriage is a dream within a dream. I haven't yet. 
you're not familiar with it, it's based on a story by William Golding. It's a story that is actually told by a grandfather reading to his grandson who is in bed sick. And he tells him the story of the Princess Bride. The Princess Bride is a woman by the name of Buttercup who grows up on a farm. And on this farm is a farm boy, a servant by the name of Wesley. And Wesley does her bidding. Whatever she asks him to do, Wesley always responds in the same way. As you wish. Wesley, get that, that cup for me. As you wish. Wesley, would you take care of the animals as you wish? And then she realized that every time Wesley was saying, as you wish, he was saying, I love you. When we are servants of God, it's a way we are saying, Lord, I love you. Not because of anything that I have done inherently or because I am that good, but Lord, because you have first loved me. See, the bonds that hold us to God are the bonds of love, the bonds of grace, the bonds of his compassion. So it's out of love for God that we seek to serve him. I think that's why James emphasizes that he's a servant of God. For he knows he doesn't deserve God's grace. James could tell us about the grace of God because at one point in the ministry of Jesus, James and his brothers said that Jesus was crazy. You can read it in the Gospels. They said he's out of his mind. And literally in the Greek, he's beside himself. When asked about his older brother, you know what his response was? He's crazy. But at some point that changed. Was it in an encounter that, that James had with his older brother after the resurrection where he says, he's, not, he's the Messiah, he's the Christ, and he is calling me to follow him. James was a trophy of grace just as we all are. And out of that grace, he was driven to serve. So when we start thinking of how we view ourselves, do we see ourselves as servants of God? You know, often we look at the world around us and we bemoan the sense of entitlement. Where, where we see the world thinking they deserve something and they're angry when they don't get it. But I wonder how much of that sense of entitlement slips into our lives where we view others as servants of ourselves rather than we are to be servants as, uh, of others as we seek to serve God. To say, how can I serve God? Because one of the ways we serve God is by serving His body. And His body is the church. One of the great heroes of the faith in the late 20th century was John Stott. Now, he's not as well known as others, but he was a contemporary of Billy Graham. In fact, they worked together frequently. Stott was more on the academic side, where Billy Graham was more on the revival populist side. But John Stott was one of the leading members that led to the Luzane Conference for World Evangelism, which was a huge event in the history of evangelicalism. Stott was also a preacher, and he had arrived in Argentina for a series of meetings he was going to be preaching at. A Latin American theologian by the name of Rene Padilla had met Stott, picked him up. It was a rainy night. They had gotten into the, the bread and breakfast they were staying at and got in and settled in. And Rene Padilla says that he woke the next morning and he heard a brushing sound. What in the world's that? He gathered his senses and he looked up, opened his door, and he found John Stott seated on the floor, 
scrubbing the mud off of Padilla's shoes. But Dave Padilla said, Dr. Stott, what are you doing? Don't, you're not supposed to be cleaning my shoes. Get up, get up. And Stott said, my dear Renee, Jesus, Jesus taught us to wash one another's feet. I, I can't wash your feet, but I can clean your shoes. Serve one another. Do we see ourselves as servants of God first and foremost? To really live out the mantra that we so often say, it's not about me, it's about the Lord. Our identity is founded in the love of God and being His servant, which leads us then to the next level, community. James says, write something that's puzzling in a way. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, at first glance, we would read that and think, wait a minute. I thought James was writing to Christians. Not to the, the 12 tribes. But James is taking an Old Testament truth and showing how the church fulfills that. Now, of course, the 12 tribes he's referring to come from the 12 children of Jacob. So you have Abraham, Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 kids who form the 12 tribes. Judah, Levi, so on. Because I have not memorized them. So somehow he's saying the church fulfills that. Now, I would remind you that the sociological definition of a tribe is this, a social division in a traditional society consisting of families or communities linked by social, economic, religious, or blood ties. That's us, isn't it? We are linked by the blood of Jesus Christ. We share the common culture that's guided by the Holy Spirit of God. And it shouldn't surprise us that James is applying this to the church because after all, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, Know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham? Who are the sons of Abraham? Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes. And he's saying the demarcation point for being a part of the sons of Abraham is faith in Jesus Christ. So if you have faith in Jesus, you are a part of the Israel of God. Now, it's not that the church has replaced Israel or is a new Israel. But that the church is the fulfillment of what God intended Israel to be. We are together in this. We share the common lineage of faith in Christ. As Chris said earlier, we are all saved by the grace of God. But notice he says that we are dispersed, spread out. This imagery would have been very familiar to the Jewish Christians because that's exactly what happened to the 12 tribes. The northern ten tribes were spread out around the world by the, the power of Assyria. Babylon spread out the southern two tribes. They were scattered like seed in the wind. And he's saying, church, that describes you now. We are scattered. Church, we are aliens and strangers in this world. That's what 1 Peter says. We are foreigners. Immigrants passing through because heaven is our home. Paul says that, our citizenship is in heaven. That's why we're different from the world around us. That's why our values are different. 
We see life differently. We value different things. In fact, tonight we're going to be starting our January Bible study for families, for children, all the way through adults on the Sermon on the Mount. And from the very beginning, you see how the ethic of the kingdom is radically different from the ethic of the world. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. What? Blessed are those who mourn. That doesn't make sense. But the values of the kingdom are radically different. So that's where we are to be transformed so that our thinking is not like the values. We are dispersed for the purpose of sharing the gospel around to those that are around us. And to do that, we need one another. We're not to be alone. We are together knit by the Spirit of God. And we need each other to accomplish the purpose that God has called us to do. Isabel Wilkerson wrote an incredibly good book called The Warmth of Other Sons, S-U-N-S. And although it sounds dry, it's worth the read. She researched the migration that occurred between 1915 and 1970 when over 6 million African Americans fled the southern part of the United States. Moving west to Los Angeles, north to Detroit, and to the northeast to New York City. She said an amazing thing happened. That somehow over time when these people who were fleeing the Jim Crow laws and the persecution they were enduring because of their skin color... They would meet and bond with others from their area. So that in L.A., a group that had fled the panhandle of Florida would meet others who shared the same food, the same songs, the same history. And they would begin to form relationships that strengthened them as they sought to live out life away from home. Church, that's us. We come together to strengthen, encourage, admonish one another that we would not grow weary in doing good, that we would find strength in knowing that we are not alone. And that is why the evil one attacks the fellowship of the church probably more than anything else. Because if he can keep us from community, he knows that he weakens us. If you look back, and I say this with a little bit of fear and trepidation because it's too easy for, for us preacher types to refer to the, the warfare of the Greek army. But permit me for just a moment. The Greek armies would train to fight and even the Romans. Being alone was bad. They were trained to fight first of all in phalanxes. Rows upon rows back together where the shield of the person would, the shield of one soldier would be in the back of the person in front of him and they would keep moving forward, keep moving forward together. If the phalanx broke down, they were trained to fight in what's called dyads, back to back. The one thing a soldier never wanted to be was alone on the battlefield. But yet that's exactly what Satan wants us to be. He wants us to feel alone. That's why community is crucial. Coming together to getting to know other believers. And I know that it's a struggle at times. For we are still being sanctified. We don't always live up to what we proclaim. But we keep trying. That's why the one another's are found throughout the New Testament. Forgive one another. Love one another. Be kind to one another. We keep striving because we need one another. So the second level of meaning is that of community, which leads to the final level, that of God himself. 
It is God who gives the individual and the community meaning. Don't read quickly over the prepositions, as Chris mentioned earlier, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. When James writes that, it's a reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ was viewed as God. They are viewed as equals. The, the, the misinformation that's being spread that Jesus never claimed to be God and the early church didn't make him God, that he wasn't made divine until A.D. 360 is crazy. Looking here, James written approximately 10 years after Jesus ascended. The Lord Jesus is lifted up on par with God. James says, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord who gives meaning to what we do. We're not forced to find our own meaning. We are created in His image, redeemed by His grace. When we seek the previous two, meaning in our individual lives and meaning in community apart from God, that's when things fall apart. It is God who gives coherence and purpose. It is God who invigorates our steps and calls the cadence by which we walk. It's God who gives us joy and purpose even in the sufferings of life. In 1666, a fire leveled the city of London. They began rebuilding the city. And at that time, the world's most famous architect, Christopher Wren, was commissioned to rebuild St. Paul's Cathedral. In 1671, he was on site to observe how things were going. And there was a scaffolding that had three brick layers on it. And he noticed the different positions of these three brick layers. One was crouched, kind of sitting down on the job. One was kind of just halfway standing, kind of doing his work in a slipshod manner. And the other, though, was working very hard and fast in contrast to the previous two. Wren called to the first bricklayer and he said, What are you doing? That man answered, he said, Well, I'm a bricklayer and I'm, work, I'm working hard laying bricks to feed my family. The second bricklayer answered the same question by saying, Well, I'm a builder and I'm building a wall. But the third bricklayer, the one who was the most productive of the three and the future leader of the group, answered by saying, I'm a cathedral builder, and I'm building a great cathedral to the Almighty. The work of laying brick was transformed by knowing it was God whom you were serving. That changes life. So how do you see yourself? Servant of God? Are you part of community? And the final question. What's your purpose, your meaning? It needs to be the Lord. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me, if you will. Those three levels can serve as an evaluative tool that we can use. There are times we get down on ourselves. We don't know what's going on, and we begin to beat ourselves up in our minds. At that moment, I want you to recognize and remember this. Believer, you are a child of God and nothing can, save, can change that. And you are called to serve. It doesn't matter if you are a student or a school teacher. If you are a banker or a builder. It doesn't matter. You may have a different vocation. But you are called within that vocation to serve God. 
That's purpose. And that doesn't change. Whether life be good or challenging, you're still a servant of God. What about community? Could 2024 be the year where you say, okay, that's it. I'm going to get involved, whether it be a Sunday school class or maybe just start by coming to one of the community fellowships. But you know what? I need to start opening my life to others. The evil one will tell you that's a risk. But I want to tell you it's a risk worth taking. Because even at the times where we feel the pain of maybe relationships that don't work out right, there is the joy of knowing you have brothers and sisters that love you and are praying for you and are with you. What about the final level? God. Not a nebulous God of our own creation, but the God who is. Who has worked redemptively in Jesus Christ so that all who believe in him can be saved from their sins. Have you placed your faith in him? Do you believe? One day we will all stand before God. And our only hope on that day is that Jesus died for us and rose again and that by faith his righteousness is given to us. Is that your story? Father, thank you for the great love you have given us. And that even in a brief verse, we are reminded of our purpose, our fellowship, and our faith. So Father, I pray that you would help us to live life fully in each of these areas for your glory. And that you would work so that your name is made known through us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.